The Gospel lesson begins in Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Hear now the Gospel of the Lord. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The word of the Lord. Be Please be seated. I have a good friend who is something of a survivalist, I think. Uh, not a haul off and build yourself a cabin in Wyoming sort of survivalist. Not that type, but a guy whose Y2K preparations included installing solar panels and then getting a backup generator and then getting a generator to back up the backup generator. I never want to be single-threaded, he would always tell me, meaning I never want there to be a single point of failure that could take out my power source. You always have to have backups. You have to have backups of backups. And he's always badgering me about my lack of preparedness for any serious disruption in civilization. For which I do feel an occasional twinge of guilt. And I must admit, I'm fascinated by, and on some level attracted to, being more prepared than I am for such events. A while back, I was reminded of this while I was watching an author uh, discuss a book he had written on the very real threat of an electromagnetic pulse. The pulse that would or could destroy our electrical grid and indeed much of our civilization. An EM pulse, as they call it, is what would happen if a small-scale nuclear device was detonated in the atmosphere over or near, even, the United States. This is not a science fiction thing. There are now apparently a fair number of people in the United States Congress who are trying to get money to harden our electrical grid to protect against such a strike. I saw this presentation, by the way, on C-SPAN. I mean, this was not a science fiction channel. And... It was a very scary presentation, backed by what I thought was a lot of good, credible data, and the room was filled with very serious people. Very smart people in the room. And there's a government commission 
which has issued various reports on the threat. But as usual, my alarm over things like this usually lasts until I change the channel. <laughs> but I do have this gnawing sense that I really should be more proactive in my thinking about this sort of thing. Because many of these threats in our world now fall into the not if, but when category. Now there are, there are other factors involved here uh, that sort of heighten the unease. These, these sorts of events, they're unlike anything that we've experienced. And they've never happened. And so they're very easy to ignore. Life intrudes, and you forget. But you sort of know you're forgetting. It takes a mindset like my friends to prepare while the event seems unreal, even fantastic. And you also realize that should such an event occur, you kind of know this. Your time to prepare has been lost. You cannot prepare after the fact. Thus the gnawing sense of unease to people who are aware of the kinds of threats we might face. Our text this morning from Matthew 25 is about an even more cataclysmic event. One which is certainly in the not if but when category. And it's the coming of the Lord to consummate the kingdom of God. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Yet, life seems to go on as usual. The second coming seems wholly fantastic. We push it out of our minds. It's very hard for us to assimilate it into our thinking. I had a person just last week talk to me about this saying, yeah, I know, I know, there's these promises and there's this eschatological kingdom and there's all this stuff out there, but I live here. Sorry. I live here. I live here. I live now. And it just seems fantastic. I have to just get one foot in front of the other. It's hard to make any sense of it. Yeah, sure, I believe it. It's hard to integrate it into our thought. And like an electromagnetic pulse, once the event dawns, your time for preparation's over. There are no tomorrows, no second chances, no timeouts, no recourse when the Lord appears. And the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 is about taking this event with utmost seriousness. It's a, and it's about preparing for this event now. So we'll make three points. 
the wedding preparations, the bridegroom's appearance, and the aftermath. The wedding preparations, the bridegroom's appearance, and the aftermath. So first, the preparations here. Matthew 25, verse 1. At that time, or then, meaning at the future coming of the Lord, then, the text says, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Notice the future tense. In most of Jesus' parables, it's the kingdom of heaven is like. Present tense. Here it's then. The kingdom of heaven will be like. The whole parable is about what happens in the future. When the promised cataclysm comes. Yes, the kingdom is like a bunch of things now. But this parable is what the kingdom will be like then. And the rest of the verses 1 and 2 are like a heading over the whole parable. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And of course the bridegroom here stands in for the coming Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom. Five of them are foolish. Five of them are wise. Verse 3 gives us the difference in summary form. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they didn't take any oil with them. These lamps are torches. They're not domestic lamps. They're probably sticks with rags on top, which you would soak, and they would burn for a little while, and they would need to be re-soaked. But the wise, they took jars of oil with the lamps. So the foolish virgins have just their oil-soaked lamps. The wise have oil-soaked lamps, plus they have a jar or a flask to replenish the oil. So that's the difference in summary form. We'll see what it means later. But now the setting here is a wedding. A Palestinian wedding. It's nightfall. The virgins are probably attendants of the groom since he's the one they go out to meet. The festivities would begin at the groom's house. And then they would go and receive the bride. The groom would go receive the bride at her house. And then there'd be this joyful evening procession that would lead them back to the grooms for the wedding banquet. The parable assumes that setting. The bride, you'll notice, the bride's never mentioned. She's not important. The only crucial thing here is the behavior of these ten attendant girls. They apparently would lead a torch-lit procession back from the, the bride's house to the groom's house for the banquet. Clearly the presence of these attendants, these ten virgins with the groom as he goes to the banquet is considered crucial. And we're given the next, in verse 5, we're given a key piece of information. The bridegroom was delayed. He was a long time in coming. You know, this is one of the places we have clear teaching from the lips of Jesus that there will be some delay, even some substantial delay, between his first coming and his second coming. In this larger 
portion of Matthew's gospel, Jesus teaches a number of critical things about his return. He says, first, the timing of my return is unknown. No man knows the day or the hour. Second, he tells us there'll be some kind of delay. And third, he says, it'll be sudden and final. Now, it's amazing, really, that in the light of this, the church continues to disgrace itself in the eyes of the world by setting dates and trying to predict the day and the hour. Many of us know of a man, now deceased, who owned a string of radio stations. All right, once reformed, biblical stations all around the world. He wrote a book predicting the return of Christ in 1994. And then rather than repenting, he just readjusted his calculations and he set a new date for, I think, 2011. And he ended up abandoning biblical doctrine on a number of key points. And the stations and the people that supported them suffered great harm, great damage and confusion. It's into this gap that Redeemer Broadcasting has stepped and is trying to fill that very gap. So we have to take with all seriousness what Jesus tells us. His coming is at an unknown time. It is delayed, and when it comes, it's sudden. All these date-setting predictions are destructive. Now here, in the parable, the delay is for preparation. Jesus delays so we can prepare. And so the question is this. Does Jesus' delay lull you into a false sense of security or does it spur you to prepare? What's the delay doing to you? What is it doing to your focus? So back to verse 5. During the delay... They all became drowsy and slept. This is actually not a critical remark since even the five wise virgins slept. It's just a piece of narrative realism. The wedding festivities started at night. There was a longer than anticipated delay. People got tired. They fell asleep. Even the wise people fell asleep. But notice here, Something very important. The wise and the foolish virgins are alike in so many ways. They all have lamps. They all need sleep. They all have invitations to the wedding. They're all ready to go to the feast. They all believe in a coming wedding feast. They all profess some sort of love for and some sort of allegiance to the bridegroom. All of them. All ten of the virgins stand in for people in the church. For you and me. People who are alike in so many ways. People who you can't discriminate between or tell the difference one from the other. But the crucial difference and the only one that matters is about to be revealed. And that brings us to the second point, which is the bridegroom's appearance. So verse 6. We're told at midnight... At midnight, like a thief in the night, 
A cry rings out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So it's time for the procession into the feast. In verse 7, all the virgins woke up and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish say to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. And once their rags burned out, they had no spare oil. And in verse 9, the wise say, no, there may not be enough for both you and us. Go buy some oil for yourselves. Go find those who sell oil and buy some. Now there are people that criticize, commentators even, that criticize the five wise women here for not being more hospitable. But that's ridiculous. Their point is simple and reasonable. If we give you some of our oil, then none of us will have enough oil and the procession will go dark. They're showing the same foresight that's made them wise. The parable's not casting any negative light on the five wise virgins by, the, by telling the foolish virgins, no, go buy yourself some oil. If anything, right, the point is that in the day of the wedding of the Lamb, no one else's preparation is going to help you. You must be prepared. I used to tell my survivalist friend when he would badger me, I would say, you know what my Y2K preparation plan is? To come to your house. <laughs> it was always, always kind of ambiguous whether he was going to let me in or not. <laughs> and it wasn't clear at all. But I'm telling you, that will not work here. That will not work here. Preparation cannot be transferred. Right? That's the point. Preparation cannot be transferred. The wedding, obviously, is not in Orange County because you can actually buy things in this town after midnight. The, the foolish virgins go and they buy oil after midnight and they find some. They get some oil. But while they're gone, the bridegroom comes. The procession takes place and those who were ready, the text says, those who were prepared, they went in with him to the banquet and the door was shut. So this brings us to the third point, the aftermath. The aftermath. The door shut. The other virgins come to the feast. Apparently they were successful at buying some oil. And they say to the bridegroom, Sir, sir, open the door for us. And here the bridegroom figure, of course, gives way to the coming Christ. And he answers very solemnly, tragically, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Like all of Jesus' parables, there's this harsh bite here that seems almost unreasonable. I mean, in the context of the parable, this is a rather uh, forgivable breach of wedding etiquette. Sorry, I forgot something. I'll be back in ten minutes. But the bridegroom doesn't see it that way. He thinks it's an indication that they don't know him. This is an echo of Matthew 7 where Jesus says, In that day, in that day, 
Many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Clearly, this is a grievous offense to the groom. I do not know you. So what conclusion can we draw from this? Failure to prepare for the end. Failure to prepare means you do not belong to Christ. It doesn't matter if you like to hang around churches. It doesn't matter if you're actually at the wedding banquet. Failure to prepare means you do not belong to Christ. So that at the end, Jesus says, I don't know who you are. The great uh, UCLA basketball coach John Wooden used to say, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Now note very well, these women who stand in for women and men, for all of us in the church, they are not callous. Right? They're not ignorant. These, these are not overly or overtly rebellious people. Right? The foolish virgins are not immoral. They have the Apostles' Creed memorized. If you sat next to them in church, you'd think they were splendid people. I mean, they're at the feast. They're probably quite active. They've made it this far. They've done some measure of preparation. If you ask them, do you love the bridegroom? They'd say, sure, I love the bridegroom. Do you want to be at the wedding feast? Sure. These people don't have horns. But they are not adequately prepared for the end, for the judgment. They are not ready to endure to the end. They don't actually live in light of the end. They are not equipped to stand in that day, to be ready. Finally, Jesus appends the moral of the story in verse 13. Therefore, keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour. Keep watch means be alert. Don't let the delay numb you, dull you, distract you. Now, this is a point we haven't made yet. The delay means your preparation must be sustained. Right? Preparation from four years ago will not help you next year. Lamp, your lamp quickly, my lamp quickly burns out. You can't live the Christian life on past achievements. Preparation must be sustained and it has to be sustained to the end because the road of discipleship is long and arduous. So don't allow the delay to numb your sense of expectancy. And this happens to us almost like breathing, right? That our sense of expectancy is, is easily numb. There's an extraordinary lack of eschatological, meaning things pertaining to the end, anticipation among the people of God. 
Well, there's two things really. You either have all sorts of weird speculation about black helicopters and end time events and pl plagues and you know, famines and that, or you have no sense whatsoever of the impending end and Christianity is reduced to a, a sort of set of principles by which we live now, which has a nice, a nice aftermath to be sure, but there's no sense of expectancy. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians, having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we groan. The whole Christian life is a groaning for the resurrection. You wouldn't know it by talking to American Christians who are just completely creatures of this age. The way you can see this, the reason I know this is not speculation, is because when's the last time you sat down with another Christian who expressed a groaning for the resurrection of the dead, for the vindication of the martyrs, for the healing of the nations, for the rectification of all the injustices that have been committed by all the regimes in the past. Nobody cares about this. We've got shiny things to follow. We've got distractions. We've got a long to-do list. Whose life is permeated by some sense of the coming judgment? Almost no one's. So the delay has numbed us. Don't think the delay hasn't numbed you, beloved. It has. It's numbed me. It's numbed you. And it can be a deadening numbness. Wisdom is having an end-oriented outlook. Again, let me put the question this way. When is the last time you met someone who is consumed by the end, by the future, by the appearance of Jesus Christ? An appearance which has already broken into our time. An end which has already impinged upon us in the gospel. An end which we stand under. An end which is in that sense always near, even if it's delayed. The end which dictates our priorities and our thoughts and our affections. We live under the sure and certain promise of His appearing. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And the Christian life takes the end with utter sobriety. Why? Because it takes Jesus Christ with utter sobriety and He is the end manifested in time. The end has already laid hold of our lives. And that changes the way you view everything. Everything. Imagine how much of our lives, our speech, our amusements, our hobbies, our culture is going to vanish like the wispy, rootless, vaporizing nonsense that it is on that dreadful day. Foolishness is not always revealed in advance. Right? If there's a biological attack or an electromagnetic pulse, then we will see who was foolish and who was wise. But not before. You can't tell before. So how much more with the coming kingdom of heaven? Now here, I do want to inject a caution. 
This means we don't live in some fevered frenzy. That's not what I'm saying. Or some constant state of anxiety. I noted as, as uh, Joe read it this morning that all the right notes are hit in the prayer of the day in your bulletin. Notice there that, that, that in the prayer of the day, we speak of God as the one who is and who was and who is to come. We ask him to stir up within us a longing for his kingdom so that we can have steady hearts and patient endurance. So being ordered to the end is not being frantic. It enables us to be steady, to be patient. Why are we so easily unraveled by things? Because we sort of really don't believe in the end. We believe that God's lost control of the narrative somehow. That things are not going to work out. That the whole universe is off kilter for a few minutes because, you know, something happened in our lives. And we fume and we fuss and we're frantic. But we need, as the prayer says, we need steady hearts and patient endurance because there has been stirred up within us a longing for the kingdom. And that changes the way we view things in this age. So watching and waiting doesn't mean passivity. It means a life of serious discipleship. I want to say a word on the oil in this text because a lot's been said about it. I don't think the oil can be made to stand for any one thing such as faith or good works or even the Holy Spirit, which is often oil in Scripture. But it stands for full or preparedness. The oil is all the things you need to be faithful in your calling. The oil is all the things you need. It means taking your calling as a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or an employee with all Christian seriousness. Taking the mission of the church, her participation in the Great Commission, in dead earnest. To be full of oil, to have your lamp Saturated and soaked means taking prayer and scripture and worship and obedience and real progress in the Christian life as if your life depended on it because it does. In the words of Hebrews, it means paying much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift. For how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Being alert means taking the coming cataclysm. And it's a joyful cataclysm. There's a wedding feast on the other side of it. But it means taking it with even greater seriousness than any doomsday prepper takes the collapse of civilization. That's a good litmus test. Do I prepare... For the coming of the Lord with a seriousness greater than the doomsday prepper is preparing for the collapse of the West. We should. Because blessed are the servants who the Master finds doing what He has called them to do when He returns. Amen.